0: This episode is brought to you by the Denver Public Library. This season is all about women writers who are working to create community impact. We think elevating the work of these writers is so important that we've partnered with one of our favorite community resources, our local library system, Denver Public Library to be exact. And whether you're in Denver or someplace else, the library wants you to know that they're still here providing vital community resources. The Denver Public Library works to foster a culture of exploration, innovation and forward thinking and is focused on creating a strong community where everyone thrives. Head over to denverlibrary.org to access the latest virtual events and resources and find some of the great books by many of the talented authors we've had the pleasure of featuring this season. Hey, it's Tanji Renee. Before we get to the show, I'm popping in to quickly ask for a huge favor. If you're a fan of this show, we could really use your support. We have a big goal of growing our listenership this season, and we could only do it with your help please take a few seconds to subscribe to this podcast. Look at your phone right now and hit subscribe. Next, if you're listening on an app like Apple Podcasts that allows you to leave a review, please give us a five-star review. Reviews actually go a really long way in helping our show get discovered by new listeners. And if you want to go the extra mile, leave us a written review in addition to the five stars. That helps even more. This show has grown because of the incredible support of our listeners, and we have an ambitious goal of getting to our next 10,000 downloads this season. We can't reach our goal without your help, so please subscribe rate this podcast, and don't forget to keep sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. Just hit share from wherever you're listening. That's it. Easy peasy. Thanks in advance for all your support. Smooches! Hey, friends, it's me, your host, Tanji Renee. This is That's What She Did Podcast, and you are listening to episode six, season six. I hate to break it to you, but that means that we have officially crossed the halfway point. That's right, there are only four episodes left in this season, so don't miss them. Make sure you hit the subscribe button, and if you haven't yet, make sure you enter our weekly giveaway. You have a chance to win the incredible book of the author I'm about to introduce you to. All you have to do is head over over to that's what she didpodcast.com forward slash giveaway drop your email address in there and your name that's all the information we're asking for and we will get you into the giveaway and someone is selected every week so go enter now let me introduce you to our latest author mina salami She's a Nigerian, Finnish, and Swedish writer, and the founder of the multiple award-winning blog, Miss Afropolitan, which connects feminism with critical reflections on contemporary culture from an Africa-centered perspective. She's a lecturer and keynote speaker, having spoken at over 200 universities, cultural events, and conferences on five different continents. She's also the author of her latest book called Sensuous Knowledge, A Black Feminist Approach for Everyone. It's an amazing collection of thought-provoking essays that explore questions central to how we see ourselves, our history, and our world. I'm excited for you to hear this interview. It was great, and I think you're gonna love her book. So let's get started. Welcome back, everyone, to That's What She Did, a show about the women leaders, innovators, and rebels you probably don't already know about. And that is why I'm super excited to introduce you to, in case you don't already know her, although I hope you do, Nina Salami, the author of Sensuous knowledge i have loved this book sensuous <laughs> knowledge a black feminist approach for everyone i just finished this book i love this book mina welcome to the show thank you Tanji. i'm so happy to be here i'm so happy to have you thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule i know it's already evening or nighttime where you are and so i'm sure this is your personal time thank you so much for giving it to us <laughs> my pleasure of all the authors that I've had the opportunity to interview so far, I mean, I have to tell you, you're the one I've been most excited to be able to sit down with finally. So Uh-oh. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's an honor. <laughs> you know, I think what it is is, I have a chance, because of this show, to speak to so many incredible women, and I find I'm very drawn to feminist genre. This show has oftentimes been called a feminist show, although I didn't intend for that to, <laughs> to be that way. It just is, and, and it's not wrong. I, I'd say that it's accurate. But I So I've been reading a lot of different works by feminist authors, and when I think back over all the books that I've read and what are the books that have had the biggest impact on me. It's been the writers who are distinctly feminist from a very I have to say Black feminist as well. There's been a lot of feminist books I've read that I thought were garbage, and <laughs> I never read them again. But, you know, you reference in your book a lot, Bell Hooks. She's probably the writer that has had the biggest impact on me personally. And so I saw that as commonality between writer and reader, and I was like, oh, the same influences. <laughs> this is definitely for me. So I've been super excited <laughs> to read it. And I finally finished it just last night, so I'm ready to chat. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. I mean it's um it's it's really wonderful to hear that my book, you know, whenever a reader tells me that it's it's something that has kept them good company and that they feel resonates with them. And also I I really like that you make that reference to Bell Hooks and we absolutely share that in common that you know she's she's one of the there's probably five black feminist writers that have had a major impact on my thinking and bell hooks is definitely without a doubt one of them and i like that you reference her in the particular context of reading books that are not necessarily like shouting feminism at you i mean i'm paraphrasing what i felt you said i also kind of wanted to write a book like that because that's one of the things that i love about bell hooks books is that they it feels like you're having a conversation with a friend Mm -hmm. um you know it's not Too abstract. There's definitely a time and a space for like abstract feminist theory and all of that, but I did want Sensuous Knowledge to be like a, a more accessible type of book for everyone. Yeah.
0: Hey there, my fellow inspiration junkies. Do you miss browsing shelves for books, movies, and music? Denver Public Library is still here for you, offering these great resources, both online and curbside. Tell Denver Public Library what you like to read or what you're craving, and they'll send you a whole entire personalized reading list with five to eight customized recommendations just for you. You can even place holds of up to 10 items that you can pick up curbside at most locations. How's that for convenience? Need a library card? No worries. Register for an e-card today and immediately access hundreds of e-media resources like e-books, audiobooks, music, movies, and so much more. And yes, it's all still free. I'm not ashamed to admit that I am totally a library junkie. You can call me a nerd if you want to, honey. I'll take it. Denver Public Library branches will be reopening soon, so make sure you check out denverlibrary.org for the latest info, and don't forget to follow Denver Public Library on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Smooches! Listener perks alert! I'm excited to tell you about Libro FM. It lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With LibroFM, you get the same audiobooks at the same prices as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. For every purchase you make on LibroFM, a local bookstore of your choosing gets half the profits it's a super simple way to shop local right from your own phone if you're new to audiobooks they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life listen while doing chores walking the dog or just relaxing at home all you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app If you already love audiobooks and you don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, local booksellers. Listeners of That's What She Did podcast can get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Who doesn't love a BOGO? I know I do. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SHEDID. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Now, how's that for a listener perk? And it definitely feels that way. I think not just in the content and the way that you introduce the ideas, but the way that you lay it out. It's very... Organized and clear, which I appreciate so much. You have no idea. I'm mildly dyslexic, like I'm on the dyslexia scale, and so a lot of books that are like written like textbooks, I can't read them. I just I cannot get okay. through them. And so when I picked it up and I was like, okay, I'm gonna take a shot at this. We'll see if I can read it. <laughs> I, it didn't take me long because it's well organized. It's intended to be accessible, as you say, for the average reader, and um, I enjoyed it. It was actually really difficult for me to put down. <laughs> oh, how appreciate nice. that! <laughs> Great. Before we actually talk about sensuous knowledge, I want to give our listeners an opportunity to just know a little bit about you. So, how did you get to this space? I know that you're a journalist and you're a very well-known blogger as well. You have a pretty vast body of work behind you. So how did you come to this? When did you know that you needed to write? Okay, so this is where I'm gonna give you like my life story, basically. Because
1: that's (laughs) that's where it starts. No, but for real, so my parents always had this joke of like how I was a blogger already when I was a child. And you know, I think in many ways they were right. Like I as far back as I can remember, I always felt this need to express and articulate not only myself but just everything that i saw around me so i was quite an observant child in that sense i grew up in in lagos in nigeria which is a it's a fascinating city in so many ways but precisely because it's contradictory. So it's super patriarchal. It's obviously, you know, it used to be, Nigeria used to be a a British colony. So it still has like neo-colonial tendencies on the one hand. And then on the other hand, it was, you had like this matriarchal type of energy there that like Nigerian women embody from history and you can still see it today. And you also had like a really strong sense of pride and the history and the culture. So there's these contradictory energies of patriarchy and matriarchy, of neocolonialism and African pride. And I was really attuned with that. Perhaps also because I, um, in every way possible, was growing up and living in a kind of multi-layered household. So my mother was Finnish, my dad Nigerian. I spoke many different languages, Finnish with my mom. My parents met in Germany, so they spoke German with each other. My dad and I spoke English. It was a family compound, so we were all of my dad's sisters, well, not all, but some of my dad's sisters lived in the same house. My grandmother lived with us. And, you know, I just had like so many different types of energies around me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I always wanted to express those. And I started writing when I was four and I would write like, you know, little commentary pieces basically. And, you know, later when I started school, I'd write for the school magazine. I still have some of them. And it was like little, column nets titled advice or how to be happy. And, you know, so I really, that's why I'm sharing all this because that's where it started. But of course, you know, life takes you on different trajectories. And as a teenager, I moved to Sweden. I've since lived a few years in New York and, and a year in Spain. And now I've been in London for over a decade. And during that time, I was, you know, I worked in marketing. I just followed different paths and paths that weren't always me living my dream or my highest version of myself, as we tend to say these days, you know, not even near that. And I guess I felt quite dissatisfied at one point, like, as I was approaching 30, I had a range of experiences, Uh, you know, I described some of them in my book. Some were quite mystical. At the time, they felt mystical anyway. I had experiences of bad relationships that were manipulative, you know, all of those kinds of things. And I was working, I was in the rat race doing a job that I didn't love. And so I decided, I'd been writing on the side as a hobby. And so I decided to pursue that full-time. And I i already had a blog, but I renamed it Ms. Afropolitan. And I enrolled in a master's degree in gender studies where I could focus on African women's history and Black feminism. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's really kind of where the sort of next phase of my life started. You know, this is just over a decade ago. So I've been writing Ms. Afropolitan for over 10 years. And um, I think at the time that it launched there were very few like african feminist blogs so the feminist blogs were mainly white feminists there weren't mm-hmm. many like black diaspora feminist spaces right. and then the blogs that were about like black liberation and pan africanism were all very male centric so i think that mezha success depends to a great extent because it, it filled a niche you know it filled a gap that was missing and yeah and you know over the years i've developed that and i've had my readership has grown it's been a really wonderful journey mm-hmm. um and many people have gotten in touch with me. And, you know, sometimes I'd get emails from students asking, is it okay to cite your blog in my thesis? <laughs> and, and of course it is. But all of these kinds of questions and the engagement I had led me to feel that I really needed to write a book. You know, something tangible that people could access, they could cite, they could agree with, disagree with, whatever. You know, just just something that actually existed. And so that's that's how I eventually came to writing sensuous knowledge.
0: It was definitely a long journey, it sounds like. And honestly, I think I I get that feeling when I read it. It felt like there was a path to this place of sensuous knowledge right and and so you talk about the title of the book why it had to be sensuous knowledge and when you explained it it made a lot of sense so I'd love for you to get into you go on this journey you're like I gotta write this book how did you land on sensuous knowledge is the necessary title
1: yeah um, sensuous knowledge came to me as a kind of epiphany so I was at the NASA camp in San Jose. I was lecturing there at the Singularity University, which is based there. And this was in 2016, I think. And it was such a life-changing trip for me in many ways, because, you know, on the one hand, I was having conversations that I am really passionate about. So I'm quite a geek when it comes to, you know, new technologies, partly because of my history working in marketing, as I said. Like, I'm, I'm quite interested in how you can use technology and psychology to influence how people people act and move in the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, Silicon Valley and NASA is obviously, like, right at the forefront of those kinds of things. There was all these amazing conversations happening. But at the same time, they were all... Or the vast majority were also rooted in this, in a very specific type of worldview, which I later in my book call Euro patriarchal. But at the time, I didn't yet have that expression. But like, I recall this one conversation I was having with a group of people. Um, they were all, all white, they were all male, they were all well to do. And they were speaking about getting insurance. Then one of them says, Yeah, but you have to make sure that insure lasts until like your mid hundreds. And I thought, you know, for a second, I'm like, I must have misunderstood. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what, what does that mean? And, and it turns out that, you know, this group of people were all expecting to live into their mid-hundreds, if not like to 200 years old because of life extension technology. So this was one of the big themes at the time during the event that I was at. And I just felt this sense of horror and anger and frustration that, you know, that how the world is, how you can have like a group of people who are like designing these things and also just living this life where they're expecting to live until they're 200. And then, you know, where I'm from and the kind of parts of the world that I engage with and Black people and women in the world, you know, to the vast majority of an extent, have a life expectancy of, you know, say 50 years. I was thinking a lot during that trip, during that particular visit of, you know, where we're moving, where we go, what kind of future do we have ahead? Where this, like the kinds of technologies that could do so much good in the world are instead seeming to just increase the division and the gaps of wealth and inequality and gender disparity and so yeah one day I was um, I was swimming there was a swimming pool at the NASA research camp and yeah just in the middle of a swimming session the swimming pool was lovely like I would go there every day <laughs> during my stay it was so soothing and yeah and this phrase just came to my mind sensuous knowledge and and I knew that I had to do something with it like I, I couldn't quite let go of it and I started jotting down down notes, but it, it took a while before I realized that that was going to be the title. Of it.
0: Yeah, I think when I first picked up the book, I thought sensuous knowledge, what the hell does that have to do with feminism at all? <laughs> <laughs> so it ended up being, you know, a sort of a hook for me. I wanted to understand what that meant. But one thing that really stood out to me. And I think it made me have a bit of a tiny sort of epiphany about my own view and experience with feminism is I didn't take into account of how very American my worldview can sometimes be. And I'm so grateful that I've had the opportunity to travel all over the world. And so i like to think of myself as a very open-minded person and not so... US centric in my thinking. But I think if I'm totally honest with myself and I really think about who are the thinkers and the writers that have had the biggest impact on me, they've been American women as well. So naturally my view would be more American-centric. But in your book, you do talk about how coming from a African-centered feminist place is distinctly different from mainstream feminism. What do you mean by that? I mean, first of all,
1: I need to unpack a little bit this idea of mainstream feminism because, you know, there are so many different types. right? Um, And so, because basically what you've just said is such a central part of my book. In some regard, you could say that I wanted to disrupt and poke a little bit about how, you know, we ourselves as Black women are almost segregating our movement. So I have been very much influenced by African-American feminists, as my book demonstrates. But I've equally been influenced by African women and by my own experiences and thought patterns that emerge from the African continent, as well as Europe and American. And yeah, I just really wanted to show how technically we're all doing that. You know, like the African-American feminist work that I engage with is so much influenced by African culture and vice versa. And yet somehow when we speak about it in public discourse, we don't seem to, you know, it's kind of exactly what you said. Like we don't, always see how biased we might be after all and how, but that at the end of the day, we're fighting the same struggle and we're doing it in really similar ways and we're influenced by one another more than we know. And so that's the first part of what you said. And then, yeah, how then this kind of Black Africa-centered feminism distinguishes itself from a mainstream white Western feminism or maybe You could also categorize it as a kind of Western liberal feminism because I've been thinking a lot about how there are growing sort of women of color groups that are more liberal feminist than radical, you could say. So one of the things that is really distinguishing is, of course, you know, that we look at race as well as a key factor that shapes our lives just as much as gender does. And there really isn't any kind of hierarchy there that one affects us worse or better than the other. Like the two are just constantly operating in tandem. And also very often class is the third factor that is really operating in tandem with how a Black woman's life is shaped. You know, from Mm -hmm. the minute we are born as Black girls into this world, we are going to be impacted by our race, by our gender, and by our class. And, you know, as I point out in my book, sometimes these impacts are positive and I'm I'm really mindful of not making it seem like, you know, being born a black girl is a disadvantage. If anything, I think it's a blessing. But um those are three key factors. Another really central factor in black feminist work is that it is traditionally anti-capitalist, which is not saying that we hate money or we don't like, you know, business initiatives that are creative. We all are involved in those things in in our own particular ways. But this kind of industrial complex, which is always seeking to make a profit is something that Black feminists historically and traditionally identify as harming Black women's lives, and especially the lives of women in the African continent, because Africa is the continent that is the most exploited. You know, Africa is the continent that feeds the rest of the world in so many ways. And going back to when I said I wanted to sort of disrupt this segregation among Black feminists, this is one of the things that I really want Black feminists in America to care more about. And why Black feminists in America? Because, you know, within the Black feminist movement, because America is the superpower, you kind of have, you know, an advantage. Your voices are heard less than other Americans, but more than other Black women, you know? And so this awareness of how exploited Africa is because of the capitalist machinery is is something that is really important. And that is something that mainstream feminism, you know, very, very rarely engages with.
0: Yeah, I don't think it does at all. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) I mean, I haven't really come across it. If it does, it's like, you know, just to tick a box. It's that kind of
0: thing. Right. I thought that your book, it just made me think on so many different levels. and. There were a lot of parallels, I think, in the points that you make with a book I read recently, earlier this year, Hood Feminism. By Mickey Kendall. I think of the two books I've read probably in the last five years, Sensuous Knowledge and Hood Feminism are the two that I'm like, these are the ones you have to read, ladies. <laughs> these <Yeah>. two. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, now that you're mentioning that, yeah, I think in Hood Feminism, that's referenced in a little bit of a different way where Hood Feminism doesn't really necessarily directly call out the distinction the need to acknowledge Africa as a key factor in how feminism overlooks and sometimes outright oppresses women of color or queer women and how that jump happens. I feel like sensuous knowledge, if I'm making any sense at all, was the next iteration of that argument that I think that in general, American readers and American feminists are not going to get anywhere else. It's never, almost never talked about ever. Yeah. I
1: love hood feminism. And, and, you know, I just want to say that it's, this is what is so powerful about actually like bringing sensuous knowledge and hood feminism to like in discussion, which Mm -hmm. I have been actually in conversation with Nikki over email. So, because what you're describing that sensuous knowledge does for an American audience, I do think that hood feminism also does for an African audience. And I try to do with sensuous knowledge also, when I say disrupt and poke, I'm also wanting to do that for African feminists, because there is a, you know, what is so powerful in hood feminism is it really brings us into the kind of the lived reality of so many Black American women. And I don't think that we also in the African continent are fully aware of that and really cognizant and really in solidarity with, like, Mm -hmm. we're very much impacted by Black American culture, you know, the music, the language, all of these kinds of things. But when it comes to the struggle, I think there's still a lot of stories that need to be shared and a lot of connecting that needs to be done. So I really love the idea of these two books being in conversation in your mind as a reader. And I think, you know, Mm -hmm. hopefully in in other readers' minds as well. And and just generally in terms of African and and African-American.
0: I definitely thought that both books were, they're like best friends. They're like, (laughs) you you can't have like one without the other. Like they're two distinctly different people, if we were to give them a persona, but they're people that would be best friends. Like they would be each other's ride or die. (laughs) That's how my brain functions. So that's what I thought. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That is just wonderful. Um, I really like that. Yeah.
0: And thinking about the two books together and how they might operate in tandem with each other, it really made me think about something that I don't think about often. And it's what do you think that Euro feminists or African feminists, what is the view of like American feminism from outside of the U.S.? I've never really considered that until I read both of these books.
1: Oh, um, that's a really good and broad question. So let me just see how I can best frame it. I think quite often, because America is so dominant in narrative production, I think you know what we tend to struggle with is actually this this sense of needing to define what our own feminism is. So, for example, Black feminism. You know, when people think of that it almost automatically is associated with people like Audre Lorde, Bill Hooks, Toni Morrison, you know, Angela Davis. Roxane Gay. Roxane Gay. Gay. It's almost synonymous with Black American feminism. And so what I think is happening around the world right now is, you know, because there has been a growing publishing industry, obviously thanks to social media and blogs, like you have a lot of more vocal Black British feminists, African feminists, Nigerian, South African, this and that. And so I think there's now a growing sense of, like, trying to define what is more specific to each location, each group. What concerns me in that is that, you know, we should be doing that. We should be looking at our own specific conditions and enriching the movement in that sense. But it it also shouldn't mean that we then, like shun or move away from these, you know, huge icons of Black feminism that have shaped the movement so influentially. But I think, you know, to answer your question, that that really is a key issue that Black feminists in Europe and Africa are grappling with. It's like this thing of how can we self-define and not just be categorized under the American feminist discourse?
0: Yeah, I don't, it is a broad question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, don't know. I don't know. that there's a, a great answer to that. <laughs> Is but, there a narrower version uh, of it? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Following that line, what do you think it could look like for there to be solidarity? And that's something that's even sort of difficult for me to imagine because we don't even have that in the U.S. So I don't, I don't know what it would look like if it's possible to have solidarity among like feminists in general.
1: Yeah, um, I think it would really be about knowing what each other's struggle is looking like and then knowing that struggle is connected. And the only way to really get about doing that is to, to be curious about each other, you know, to to like explore what books are being written in Brazil, in, mm-hmm. um, in South Africa, in the different corners of the U.S. And like, what are the... What kinds of different arguments are Black feminists making? Because, you know, as, as we briefly touched upon, there are so many different types. Like you have the Black feminists that are invested in like eco-feminism, looking mm-hmm. at climate change and feminism and how that connects. A book like Hood Feminism is really looking at like structural inequalities and Black Lives Matter, as well as popular culture. And yeah, like just, it sounds, it's not a, like a direct proposition but it is about raising awareness of each other and also like being okay with that we're not all going to think alike you know there there should be space for disagreement and debate but with that kind of vision that we're all part of the same movement and yeah I think solidarity is also you know on a more on a structural level it is about opportunity you know opening up space. Like, I feel like this conversation right here is an example of solidarity. You know, you have a platform. I have a platform. We're sharing Mm -hmm. ideas and space. That's like, imagine this happening now on, you know, on a grander, larger scale, like big events where we just have Black feminists from around the world. Like, discussing, sharing, asking each other, you know, what's up in your corner in the world? What are you guys doing? That's what it's about.
0: Do you think that is the next iteration of feminism? Like solidarity? Point? Yeah. Yeah. I th- yeah. Yes and no. I think,
1: I hope it will be. I'm concerned that we are working more and more in silos, um, you know, and this has to do with the way that funding works, the way that, you know, what I call Europatriarchy, it is the dominant system and its aim is always to kind of divide and conquer. Unfortunately, in many ways it is succeeding. I'm concerned now that because we're all, you know, we're even more isolated, like literally social right. distancing, it's more difficult to connect in ways that can be really impactful. So I think we're gonna have to make more of an effort you know, I hope. I also see that there are many opportunities and trends toward that. Like if you look at a film like Beyonce's Black is King, you know, that is such a, a, in terms of symbolism, in terms of popular culture, it's really pushing for that kind of solidarity. Um, I felt like that film was evoking many of the sensibilities in sensuous knowledge, like similar things that I wanted Mm -hmm. to evoke of course the main difference is that it is you know it's absolutely enmeshed in capitalism and my book is anti-capitalist so that's a huge difference but in terms of like the symbolical and bringing together black voices from the continent with America with Latin America like I really love that and that's the kind of thing you know I wish we could do more of and it doesn't have to be like backed by disney like you know we can we can replicate that in in different ways using our creativity and imagination
0: yeah it's just something i've been thinking about because i think to your point it does feel siloed and as someone who yeah i consider myself a feminist for sure but i'm not like in the trenches, right? (laughs) I'm not writing books and I'm not teaching on feminism or I'm not an organizer and, you know, leading marches or protests or anything like that. It still feels very siloed to me. It feels like you are either in this camp or you are in that camp and the two camps don't talk to each other because they don't get along. They can't, Find a way forward, and so it, it feels like as as someone who does the show, right? And, and every year, you know, some article will distinctly characterize the show as feminist, and it's like this is the show that you should be listening to during Women's History Month, which is great. I appreciate it, but it leads me to think if I'm playing some very minor role in what it is to be a feminist in today's America, what's next? Because I don't really know what it is. And I don't know anybody else that seems to know what it is either. So (laughs) what are we doing here? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, sometimes
1: I think we put too much pressure on ourselves. You know, like if we go back to what you started the conversation with saying how, you know, you read a lot of books and then you suddenly realize that, oh, many of the books that really speak to me are explicitly feminist. I think that's a really important quality to to encourage and to, like, not to frown upon, you know, because a lot of women come to feminism that way. You're just reading books. I read Sula by Toni Morrison, I was 16, and I just went, this is me, like, this spirit is who I am. This is my tribe. What is it called, you know? And and, and I think that that kind of, that's more important than what feminism exactly is and what, how you have to behave and so on and so forth. That said, I do think that once a woman has been exposed to feminism or if a woman is curious, like if anybody listening is thinking, mm, I'm not sure if I'm a feminist or not, or if it's a movement that I want to align myself with. I think what is important to know is that feminism is a women's intellectual and activist tradition that goes back centuries and it's you know it's by no means perfect but it's tradition we call it a movement a political movement and it is that but it's quite interesting when we think of it as a women's tradition and it's you know something that every woman has access to every woman can contribute to however big or small just like you know let's say Christmas. Christmas is a tradition. Not everybody celebrates Christmas the same way or even celebrates it at all. Maybe somebody just lights a candle. Another person goes like full on lights everywhere in every corner. I think it might be useful to to look at it a little bit like that. What can I do to uphold this tradition or to enrich it right now, you know? And right now for you, it might be like with this podcast, bringing on feminist voices as you're doing. At another time in your life, It might be to write your own book or to go and protest, like, you know, whatever, speak to a young woman, recommend books to her. But that spirit of it being a tradition just helps us to to not feel either that there's pressure to do a particular thing or that we can't participate at all if we don't call ourselves feminine.
0: That's a very helpful way to think about it. Personally, I've never thought about it that way. It does feel, now that you mention it, it does feel like there's a pressure there to... I don't know what <laughs> something, anything, um and have it be some type of ripple effect that I don't know i I just wanted to create a show that I wanted to listen to, and it turned into something much bigger than that, which I'm grateful for, but at the same time, I think I probably like a lot of people, overthink and apply additional pressure to ourselves around those things that we don't necessarily have to. <laughs> no, we don't. And, and, and you know, the thing
1: about looking at feminism as a tradition is that it's also that it then makes it fun, you know? There's a hell of a lot of struggle that we need to fight against. This this is a really ugly world. But at the same time, you know, we only have one life. And during that life, we have to pursue activities that fill our lives with meaning. And that, I mean, that's how I'm defining fun because, you know, we're adults. <laughs> yes. And so pursuing meaning is something that is fun. And, and I think when we become invested in the feminist tradition in that way, and more specifically, the Black feminist tradition, like this is something so precious. This is something that, you know, going back to the sojourner truths and in the african continent women like queen Nzinga and Nanaya ya shantewa i mean there's so many like when we think that we are we're contributing to the same tradition that these women started you know that is meaningful as fuck and you know that just makes it like that is what sparks the curiosity because when you're thinking of it that way you suddenly want to like learn more you might become interested in like what are the feminists before me that you know, back in the days, hosted radio shows or or some kind of community conversations. And it, that just, it helps to sort of ground the work that you're doing in maybe a way that you hadn't thought of before. And mm-hmm. like for all women, that's the, I just think that that kind of meaning making is important for the tradition in itself, because that's what strengthens it.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I think, I think that's really helpful. Thank you for that. Appreciate that one. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask you about sort of switching gears here for a second is the process of publishing. This year has, I guess, in a sense, opened my eyes to the publishing industry, an industry that I've never given any thought to before in my life. And it started earlier this year. There was, I don't know if this would have been covered much outside of the U.S., but there was a big incident, I guess I would call it, around a book called American Dirt. And it was very controversial that this book and this author got a massive advance. And it was was a white woman author that wrote a fiction book about Mexican immigrants and this whole story. And she said that she was, I guess, qualified or the right person to write this story because she's married to an immigrant. Turns out the story wasn't what everybody thought it was. It was a big, big controversy. Many people believing that This incident with this book exposed racism within the publishing industry. There was a lot of stuff that happened as a result of that. So it sort of opened my eyes to an industry I've never really thought about in the past. But as I was reading your book, it made me wonder, what was the process like getting a book like this to publish?
1: I remember that controversy vaguely, actually. And it did remind me of the process of sensuous knowledge being published, which which wasn't an entirely positive one for me. So it kind of triggered some negative sentiments in that sense. It wasn't entirely positive because when I had written my proposal and my agent started shopping, that's the phrase they use if I remember correctly, um, shopping the proposal with publishers, I had quite a lot of rejections, which is fine, but many of the rejections were based on the book allegedly being too African. And this was really disturbing to receive that feedback. You know, this is in the UK. Britain is a country that has had colonies all around the world, and Mm -hmm. especially in the African continent. And, you know, to be in the 21st century and, you know, publishers in this country, which, of course, you know, it's not the individual's fault that this country used to be a colonizer, but, um, but it's just this discord where you know, you can still think that the African continent is not relevant to a British audience, despite the fact that you basically like took over and exploited the African continent for Mm -hmm. hundreds of years. So yeah, it just, it just made me aware of how monolithic the publishing industry is, how much of a, like a single story there is, Mm -hmm. and also how limited it is to black female voices you know like there's this idea that there can be you know there can be two or three of us who are writing about feminism and then then there's like some kind of cap and now you know we already have this person and that person we don't need another black feminist voice that's really a shame but but you know i think the black lives matter protests that happened during lockdown or right after lockdown have really challenged that because from what i'm understanding right now you know friends of mine who are publishing books and just generally being involved in this industry, it is really opening up to like a multiplicity of black female voices. And I really can't imagine a publisher saying to me today, like after everything that happened in the past few months, that this proposal is too African. <laughs> I, you know, it just it I just cannot picture it. Whereas only three, four years ago, this is still something that was happening.
0: Right. I mean it's just such a A weird thing to say in my view you know what do you like what does that even mean and and when I hear people say things like that I wonder if they listen to themselves when they speak (laughs) I'm going yeah do do you hear the words that are falling out of your mouth right now (laughs) exactly (laughs) what does that mean it's too African what do you want it to be who would you like me to talk about Queen Elizabeth (laughs) You know?
1: Yeah. Yes, that's exactly who they would
0: like you to talk about. Yeah, it's wild. (laughs) Yes. But you know, it it was
1: also I just want to say that it was also a really positive experience. And Mm -hmm. and if anybody is thinking about getting into publishing, absolutely go for it. I had you know, despite many rejections, I also had like five or six offers simultaneously, and we had to go into an auction for which publisher would get the book. So it's that thing where. For all the, like, prejudice, there's also publishers who are really open to new ideas. And, you know, I worked with Amistad in the U.S. Um, is my U.S. publisher. And this is Amistad, the first Black imprint at any, like, mainstream publisher, I think, but definitely at HarperCollins. And, you know, they were wonderful and instantly very excited about bringing my voice to the american audience so yeah it's there's pros and cons Mm
0: -hmm. i'm so happy that you got it (laughs) honestly i loved reading it it was meaningful as fuck to me so thank you for your work thank you mina where would you like our listeners to go to learn more about you and to pick up sensuous knowledge they should go to my website,
1: www.misafropolitan.com and I've got information on there about Sensuous Knowledge and it also links to my Instagram and Twitter and Facebook but if anyone wants to go directly there it is at Ms. Afropolitan on all of these platforms.
0: Definitely do folks and as usual we will link in the show notes so you have one simple click to get to the website learn more about Mina Salami and her incredible book, book Sensuous Knowledge a Black Feminist Approach for Everyone. I'm also thrilled 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 to let you know that Mina has has been gracious enough to give us a copy of the book. So we will be giving this away to a listener. This copy that I read that I have sitting next to me right now is going to belong to one of you. So if you want a chance to win the book, head over to our website, that's what she did Podcast.com, and learn the details so that you can be entered for a chance to automatically win. Mina, thank you again so much for joining us on that's what she did podcast. Thank you for having me. my pleasure. Again, folks, thank you for coming back for another week and listening to this conversation and engaging with us. You are the reason why this show continues to grow week after week and season after season. So if you have not hit the subscribe button, now is the time. What are you waiting for? Just get it done. Make sure you don't miss any upcoming sessions, seasons, and episodes, and opportunities to win something from the show. And as usual, please continue to share the show with your friends and family let them know what you're listening to let them know that they need to listen to this episode that they need to read this book we're so grateful to you for your time thanks again folks until next time we out